Excellent. Well, we are continuing today our series in Daniel, week two uh, of this series, looking at the Old Testament book of Daniel. We began last week with chapter one, uh, and today we're going to carry straight on where we left off um, in chapter two together. Now, my hope and my expectation as we go through this together is that actually for, for each one of us, Whatever we're going through and whatever circumstances we're facing, this series uh, and, and today, even as a standalone message, if you're just here for one week, will be one where each of us finds a new kind of hope and a new kind of steadfastness in who God is and in his sovereign rule over all things, and a comfort and hope that we can find in that. And so, as we read from chapter 2 today, um, we're going to see, I thought it was just so helpful the way Jenny prayed in worship just now, that in every circumstance, in every moment, there's not one circumstance, there's not one season of life in which we can't come to God and find wisdom, that we can't come to God and find comfort, we can't come to God and find hope. Uh, and, and that's very much what we're going to look at this afternoon. And, and so as we look at chapter 2, we're going to find two very different characters. We are going to see an incredibly powerful, wealthy king. A man who the world would say has got it all in abundance. And yet this king we're going to see is, is in just total turmoil He can't sleep, he's got no peace, he's paranoid, he's a mess. And the other person who we're going to see in today's chapter as we read is is Daniel, who at this point in time is is a young Hebrew slave. Essentially, he's a prisoner of war who is powerless. He's vulnerable. He's in a foreign land. And yet in the midst of those circumstances, he displays incredible peace. And we're going to see why those two characters might respond the way they do as we read today. So we're going to read a little, pause, unpack it, and see how it applies as we go. So let's begin from uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. It will come up on the screen, but if you've got a Bible, I'd always encourage you to open it up uh, and find it as well. Read along there. So, Daniel 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, that's our powerful king, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his peace, his sleep left him. So Nebuchadnezzar is a mighty king. He's only just at the beginning of his reign in Babylon, but already... He's been incredibly successful. The Babylonian Empire is expanding. He is at the height of his game. They're sweeping away all in their path. He has the world at his feet. As far as anyone could see, looking on at Nebuchadnezzar, he's got it all. Literally anything he wants, he's got it. He's wealthy, successful, powerful, respected, Like no one dares come before the king without bowing down. Like he's on top of the world and yet he has these dreams. Now you would think a man who has all of that would be incredibly confident, wouldn't you? Incredibly self-assured. 
I mean, everyone looks up to him. He's incredibly successful, and yet he has these dreams, and it so troubles him that his peace evaporates, that his confidence is thoroughly rocked, that he's troubled, and he can't sleep. Now, partly this is because Nebuchadnezzar was a spiritual man. He was a pagan king, but he was a spiritual man. We know that about him from history. He was named after one of the Babylonian gods. He kind of prayed to another of the Babylonian gods and gave uh, kind of honor to another of the Babylonian gods at his coronation when he became king. And in ancient Babylonian society, dreams were often considered a way that the divine was trying to communicate with you. And so for, Dan, for Nebuchadnezzar having these dreams, he's like, oh man, like the gods in his view, and he was closer to the truth than he thought, the gods are trying to say something to me and I'm troubled by it. I don't know what it means, but I'm troubled. And so he calls in those who he thinks will be able to help him. We read on from verse 2. The king commanded the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. They come in. They're in reverence. They bow down to this mighty king. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. (laughs) The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Seems a pretty unreasonable request, right? He's like, don't just tell me what it means. Tell me what it is, and then tell me what it means. And if you do that, I won't kill you. Like, steady on. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. The king invites these advisors in. But he's not going to tell them what the dream is because he thinks they're just going to fob him off with words of flattery, with some kind of made-up interpretation that will keep their heads on their shoulders and will make him feel good about himself as king. The king won't tell them the dream. He doesn't want them fobbing him off. And For whatever reason, in his panic about the dream, his concern about what it might mean, the king is paranoid. 
He doesn't trust the people who he would normally trust and who he's gathered around himself. He's suspicious they might just make it up. So he wants them to tell him the dream first, because if they can do that, like if they know what he dreamt, then there's a decent chance they'll be able to tell him what it means. And to sharpen their minds, he threatens if they don't do it, he's going to put them to death. I think that might kind of stop you from just glibly making it up on the spot. If you were in their position, one of these magicians or sorcerers, you would probably be beginning to panic. Unsurprisingly, they can't tell him what his dream is. (laughs) So they try to negotiate and they try to convince him to tell them and he won't do it. Knowing their lives are in danger, they're not going to speculate. You'd be a mug to do that, wouldn't you? Like, if we get this wrong, we could have a punt at what the dream might be, but if we don't get it nailed, then we're dead. So right now, the better thing to do is to keep quiet and try and convince him to let us know what it is. And in their appeal to him, no one has ever been asked to do this before. They're like, no powerful king has ever expected anyone to be able to do this before. Only the gods could show you what your dream is. It's impossible. And they're closer to the mark than they think they are with what they say, and we're going to find out more about that in a minute. But with their response, Nebuchadnezzar snaps. His restlessness, his paranoia boil over into rage. And we read this from verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. They sought Daniel and his companions to kill them as well because they were included in the wise men, even though they weren't all there. The king orders the execution of all of the wise men. He's like, if this group can't do it, I don't think any of you can do it. I'm done with the lot of you. And how Daniel responds to this is really striking. We read from verse 14, Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time when he might show the interpretation to the king. This is phenomenal. The contrast, and the contrast is deliberate here, between Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar couldn't be more stark. Daniel is a young, powerless Hebrew prisoner of war who is effectively a slave in the king's household and whose life is now in material danger. He's just had his death sentence pronounced over him because the other counsellors couldn't do what the king was asking. And under threat of death, in slavery, in a strange land, with no ability in and of himself to really do anything about his situation... Daniel's life and situation looks anything but secure, doesn't it? Like if, you just, like if you could imagine being in even like one of the positions that Daniel's in, like perhaps you've had to flee your home, like Daniel wasn't, didn't have to flee, he was actually forcibly removed from his home country, but maybe you've had to leave. Everything that you know is familiar. You had to leave behind 
your family, all your familiar surroundings, the language, you know, everything that is familiar to you, everything you hold dear is gone. You feel vulnerable in those kind of moments, don't you? Like even in a very small way, when you, like you go to university or you leave home for the first time, yeah, there's some excitement to it, but there's also a kind of vulnerability. Daniel is in an incredibly vulnerable situation. And yet he's confident and measured in his response. He goes into the king, requests an audience to tell him the meaning. Daniel displays incredible peace and assurance in the most insecure and vulnerable of circumstances. And yet the king, who we've already said from a human perspective, should feel incredibly secure, is absolutely freaking out. Like he's lost it to the point that he's going to kill all of his advisors. <laughs> Daniel is at peace because he knows that God's in control. Daniel is at peace because he trusts God. Whatever the outcome of this, he trusts God. However bleak his situation appears, he doesn't panic when everything looks like it's spiraling out of control. He keeps his head because he trusts God, not his circumstances. He's not looking around him. What do these things say about how I should feel? What do these things say? He's looking to God. And confident in God, he stands before his would-be executioner and requests time to go and show him the meaning of his dream. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? And then what Daniel does next is so helpful and so instructive for us. We read from verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel doesn't try to be the hero. <laughs> he doesn't go it alone. He doesn't try and carry it all on his shoulders. He goes and he asks his friends to pray with him. He doesn't go to his friends and they have a problem-solving workshop, like brainstorming solutions, like what are we going to do about this? Guys, we need to come up with some kind of, like, uh, you know, how are we going to approach it? What are we going to do? And he goes to his friends, and like Jenny prayed in worship earlier, knowing that they can come to God in every moment, in every circumstance. They pray. When you face crisis, like Daniel and his friends faced crisis. You can pray to the one who has all wisdom and all power and all authority to do something about it. That's what Daniel prayed. He knew that he was powerless. He knew he couldn't do anything to change the king's mind in and of himself. He knew he couldn't spare their lives. Daniel was in a position of absolutely zero power and he knew it. Apart from God. And so he prayed and he invited his friends to pray. God has put brothers and sisters around us. Guys, whatever you're going through, however powerless you might feel to do something about your situation, 
God's put you alongside others in this room. Don't try and carry it alone. Pray. Invite others to share it with you. Invite others to pray with you. So important. And so Daniel and his friends prayed. They prayed to the one who they knew could do something. They asked him for mercy. And he answered. We read from verse 19, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And imagine going to sleep that night after praying and God waking you up and giving you a vision about what the king had said. Like, I don't know about you, but I would be, I'd be questioning it. <laughs> and maybe I just don't have as much faith as you, but can you imagine? Like, the stakes couldn't be higher. Like, their lives are literally on the line. But Daniel receives this vision from God. Knows God's spoken to him. And Daniel responds in prayer. We read, Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Daniel's going to go through now and and remind us, (laughs) as he prays this prayer of thanks and adoration to God, why he could have peace why he didn't need to be troubled, why he could have confidence in the circumstances he was facing. The God to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Nebuchadnezzar's only where he is because God's put him there anyway. That's Daniel's perspective. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and you have made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Having received this vision from God in answer to their prayer, Daniel rightly praises God. He draws out these things. It gives us an insight into Daniel's heart. It gives us an insight into why Daniel felt peace, why he didn't freak out, why he didn't lose his mind, why he was able to confidently go and stand before the king. Because Daniel declares that God is a sovereign king over all kings and kingdoms, that he's the only true source of wisdom, that nothing is hidden from him, that nothing and no one is beyond him. And confident in God, Daniel goes now to see the king and to make known his dream. We read from verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste. <laughs> like He was in a hurry, right? <laughs> Didn't want to lose all their advisors. Like, let's get this sorted quick before the king really loses it. And said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, 
No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. He's like, no, I can't do it. (laughs) Not on my own, anyway. And he carries on. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Daniel is quick as he goes to the king to ensure that God gets the credit. He won't take it for himself. The king's like, are you able? <laughs> and Daniel's like, no. <laughs> I love that line. He says, it's like, as for me, he says, it's not because of any wisdom I have more than all the living. He's like, I'm nothing special. But God reveals mysteries. God has done this. It's in him. He's the one who's worthy of worship. He's the one who's the source of all true wisdom. And he says to the king, hey, your dream that you've been having, these visions, God's revealed to you about the future. And at that point, Nebuchadnezzar, and you'll see when we get into the dream in a minute, might have been thinking, oh man, (laughs) that's not good for me, if that's the future. But having made it clear that it's God who deserves the credit, Daniel now reveals the king's dream and what it means to him. So he begins, You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. As Daniel begins to give the interpretation for this slightly crazy dream about a statue made of different metals that gets smashed to the finest dust and disappears by a rock that grows up into a mighty mountain and fills the whole earth. Daniel begins by getting Nebuchadnezzar's perspective in the right place. Right at the outset, he says to him, like, yeah, you've got a huge amount of power and authority. 
but there's one greater than you, the God of heaven. And it's the God of heaven who's put you in the place you're in. It's the God of heaven who's given you the authority that you have. There's Nebuchadnezzar, you are like the gold head and shoulders on that statue. But all the authority you wield, all the splendor you enjoy, all the power you have, all the respect you command from others is only there because God has put you where he's put you. There's one bigger than you. You think you're big. There's one greater. There's one greater. Guys, we need to hear this. Whatever influence you have, whatever success you've enjoyed, whatever power you have, God's given it to you. We need to be humble and acknowledge that. Your wealth, your influence, your status, your position at work, in community, these things can be a source of pride for us, can't they? Like Nebuchadnezzar could have looked at all of that and been like, yes, I am the man. <laughs> like, I don't know about you, but I, I think it's a challenge for all of us. That when we gain status, when we gain a, a position in work, when we, there are different kind of status symbols in society. Maybe it's the car you drive. Maybe it's the house you live in. Maybe it's the, the neighborhood that you live in. Maybe it's the family you've come from. Whatever it might be, we can look at those things and take them on as a, as a badge of honor, a source of pride, like, yes, like I'm really smashing it. We need to get our perspective right. There is one who is greater, and it's only by his kindness his mercy. It's only as we enjoy his common grace on humanity that there's even breath in your lungs right now. Like, you, you're not smashing it as much as you might think you are. We are utterly and completely dependent on the God of heaven. Nebuchadnezzar needed a reminder of that fact. We need to remember that fact too. The very breath in our lungs right now is because he's sustaining. It's because in his kindness he's providing. But those things can also become sources of fear and anxiety. Those same things that we hold on as status and value, those things that can make us feel important or superior to others, can also become sources of fear and anxiety as we worry that we might lose them. Like Nebuchadnezzar at the start, we can lose sleep as we feel the weight of work or the weight of responsibility and family or whatever it might be. We, people respect us and we think, yeah, but what if they find out what I'm really like? We need to remember there's a bigger picture. We need to allow the realization that God is in control to humble us. And the dream doesn't stop there. God makes known to Daniel what this dream was all about, Nebuchadnezzar. And with the benefit of hindsight, we can see just how incredible this dream was about what was yet to come. Because the dream continues, another kingdom 
Inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over the earth. So he's like, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom, the gold head and shoulders is going to come to an end. And there's going to be another kingdom, that's the silver torso, that's going to come up after you. And then another kingdom, a third one after that, that's like the bronze midsection. Unlike the flattery of the king's advisors at the start. Oh king, live forever. When they come in, they're trying to curry favor. Daniel's, here's what God has to say and he delivers it plainly. There's no flattery here. It's like, you're not going to live forever, Nebuchadnezzar. You're not going to rule forever. There's, there's a kingdom coming after you. You're going to come to an end. And all this power, all this influence, all this status that you enjoy right now, it's, it's going to go. There's another one coming after and another one after that. Two kingdoms, both inferior to the first, the silver and the bronze, not as good as the gold. We look at history. We go, well, what came next after the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks? Two kingdoms. And then we read on, there shall be a fourth kingdom. Another one? A fourth kingdom as strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these things. What was the next big world power, the next big kingdom that arose? Rome. Rome, like a kingdom of iron that would crush everything in its path. This dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar, which Daniel is now revealing to him, with the benefit of hindsight, we see this is an incredible vision of what was yet to come in the future. As you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay." This iron kingdom is going to get weaker as time goes on. Again, we can look at the Roman Empire, this mixing of clay and iron, of, of strong and brittle. We see as Rome progressed in conquering other nations, as time went on and as they continued to, to press out into other lands, they did intermarry. And in the later years, they allowed people in the nations they conquered to keep their own customs and traditions and to worship their own gods. At one point, the empire was reckoned to be almost 50% slaves, many of whom would have kept much of their own traditions, partly strong and partly brittle. The huge number of slaves and the mixture of beliefs and cultures ultimately made for a weak empire. And in the end at least in part, led to the demise of Rome, this fourth kingdom in this vision. But another altogether different kingdom was going to emerge at that time too. See, in this vision, God was telling Nebuchadnezzar, like, you're ruling now, someone else is going to come after you, someone else is going to come after them, someone else is going to come after them, but then something really unexpected is going to happen and a new kind of kingdom is going to happen. One that won't be succeeded, one that won't pass away. We read the, this from verse 44. And in the days of those kings, that's in the last empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. 
nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. God himself, after these successive kingdoms, would establish a new kind of kingdom, an everlasting kingdom that wouldn't be passed on, this succession of kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. A new one that won't be passed on and won't be destroyed. A stone cut not by human hands. What's that about? Who's that about? Anyone? You can, if you've got any guesses, who might that be about? Jesus. Yeah. Jesus. Christ Jesus, born. Not of the will of a father, but of God. The stone cut not by human hands. Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom of God with his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus came to establish a new and everlasting kingdom. And whoever acknowledges Jesus as Lord, whoever comes to him as Savior, becomes a citizen of that everlasting kingdom. And so for the past 2,000 years, the kingdom of God has been advancing. It's been expanding. That vision that saw this stone cut not by human hands that would go above and beyond all preceding human kingdoms and this stone that would grow into a mighty mountain that would fill the whole earth is a picture of the kingdom of God that will grow and grow and grow until the whole earth sees the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. For the past 2,000 years, the kingdom has been advancing, and it still is today, from a small and unlikely-looking bunch of Jewish misfits to men, women, and children of every tribe and tongue and nation. And there will be a day when all other kingdoms will pass away. There will be a day when every eye will see and every tongue will confess. This dream was a, a warning and a wake-up call to Nebuchadnezzar, not to think too highly of himself, to realize that there was one higher. But it was also a declaration of hope. It's a declaration of hope for you and for me and for anyone who would come and put their trust in Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar and his successors would come and go. The Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, they come and go. Presidents and prime ministers, we look around the world today. Kings and queens and emperors and dictators will come and go. But the king of heaven and his kingdom will never fade, will never pass away. Where's your hope? What are you looking to for your security? Are you looking to, to kings and queens and kingdoms, to emperors and rulers and presidents and prime ministers? Are you looking to the king of heaven? 
whose kingdom is advancing and will never, never fade. He's the perfect king who always does what's right, who rules with perfect justice and mercy. When Christ returns in glory, every eye will see, every tongue will confess that he's Lord, every knee will bow. The sad reality is that for some it will be too late. How about you? Are you part of that kingdom? Have you put your trust in him? Is your hope resting on the one who will never fail or fade? Or are you tempted to lean on more temporary things? Which kingdom are you trusting in? Which kingdom are you investing in? Where are your, where's your thoughts and energy and time and resource being invested? Like that which is going to be ground to dust, like that on the threshing floor and blown away? Or that which is going to last forever? See how Nebuchadnezzar responds. We read from verse 46. King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. Let's pause a second. This is a brilliant but very misguided response. Nebuchadnezzar is, is cut by what he hears. He's struck by what he hears. But his first response is that he bows down. He's humbled. He bows down and begins to worship Daniel. Like, the king doesn't bow to anyone. People come in, bow before him. And here, having heard this, recognizing that there is one greater than him, that his kingdom is going to come to an end, he bows down. He could have responded in pride or anger. He's already shown himself to be a pretty volatile character. He seemed pretty quick to sentence his advisors to death. I think this probably wasn't like the most encouraging message, perhaps. But instead, he responds in humility. Now, something obviously happens between verse 46 and 47 that we don't get to read about. But clearly, there's a shift, and it's a good one, because we read on, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly... Your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all of the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. This is an incredible response. Daniel takes a huge risk in sharing what he shares with the king. He was facing death anyway, and so he brings the dream and its meaning. In doing so, he brings Nebuchadnezzar down, doesn't he? It's like brings him down a peg or two. You're great, but there's one greater. You need to remember that. Nebuchadnezzar responds with humility. And he worships God. He sees that Daniel's God, through the power of this witness, that Daniel's God is the true God, the one 
He's the revealer of mysteries, the one who deserves worship. And at least for now, because we'll read on later in the book, it doesn't last for long, but at least for now, Nebuchadnezzar finds a measure of peace in recognizing there is one greater than him who rules and reigns supremely over all things and who belongs to an everlasting kingdom. He finds peace. We need to humble ourselves too and come in worship of the one whose kingdom will never end. At the start of this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar's a total mess, isn't he? He's got wealth, respect and authority, but he's a nervous wreck. He's got no peace. In his kindness to Daniel, God brings Nebuchadnezzar to a point of recognizing that ultimately he isn't in control. It doesn't all rest on his shoulders, and that's a really good thing. There's incredible peace to be found in knowing that the God of heaven has placed him where he is at this time. Guys, there's peace to be found in recognizing that God has placed you where you are now. It says in his word that he he ordains the times and seasons, the places where we're born, where we live. There's peace to be found in knowing that he's placed you where you are at this time. There's, There's peace to be found in knowing that there is a bigger story than your responsibilities and your authority and your influence. For Nebuchadnezzar, there was peace to be found in knowing that there was a bigger story than his kingship and his kingdom, in knowing that there was a greater king and a higher kingdom. And so I guess I want to ask you today, how are you doing? Are you anxious? Are you feeling the weight of responsibility in different things? Are you worried about how things are going to play out or pan out? Are you lacking peace? Have you lost your joy? It just feels like life is hard work. I want to suggest that when we begin to feel like that, not always, but sometimes it can be a sign that we're trying to find our security in something other than God. We're trying to shoulder responsibility that we can't bear the weight of. We think somehow that it all rests on us. Now there's a right aspect to which we've got to play our part. We take responsibility for things, but ultimately we trust in him. We can be inclined to think it all sits on our shoulders. You might not be threatening to dismember people like Nebuchadnezzar was, but sometimes maybe you find yourself in different situations fighting for control, like worried that it's going to be taken away from you. When things don't go your way at home, at work, I don't know, when things don't go your way, do you find yourself sometimes boiling over in anger? Because it's not how I wanted it to be. It's not how I thought it should be. When we think that it's our world and things should go our way, we're like Nebuchadnezzar at the start of this story. We sit on the throne of our lives and we allow ourselves to begin to think that we're the ones in charge and that everything else should be centered around us. Other people exist, although we'd never put it like this, other people exist in some way for our convenience to serve us rather than for us to serve them. 
We start to look at circumstances and situations and think it should all revolve around our preferences and our wants and desires. And when it doesn't, we get frustrated and cross and angry. We end up like Nebuchadnezzar. Less wealthy and powerful, but just as grumpy and anxious. And yet freedom is found in humbly surrendering to the King of Heaven. Freedom is found in saying, God, you sit on the throne. I want to serve you. I want it to be your will and your way, not mine. I'm here for your glory and the good of those around me rather than them all here to serve me. Freedom is found in surrendering to the King of Heaven, in trusting that he's always good, that his ways are better than our ways, and knowing that his kingdom will never come to an end. Let's stand together, shall we? Johnny's going to come and lead us in another song. I want to pray for us as we do that.